All right. So um, this week we have a special guest, Wim Remis from Wire Security. And then um, co-hosting with me this week is my esteemed colleague, Brian McLean. Wim, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about who you are and Wire Security. Definitely. Uh, I'm very bad at, at uh, talking about myself, by the way. Um, I'm Wim Remus. I uh, live in Belgium with my family. Uh, I run a company called Wire Security. Um, I've been in IT and uh, computer security uh, since 1997, so um, more than 20 years. I started out uh, at a very low level, um, basically as a computer installer for, for a bank, um, and then worked my way up to uh, help desk, service desk, uh, system engineering. And then at, at some point, I, I think around 2000, I started to get an interest for security. There wasn't a lot of um, stuff out there. Uh, and I just started to learn by myself. And in the end, I started my own company called uh, Wire Security, um, trying to focus on what uh, what is called wicked problems. So um, it's easy for companies to uh, to find a lot of people that can install firewalls, that can manage IDSs, uh, but companies are still struggling with very complicated problems. And I'm more interested in helping companies address those problems than uh, the the basic stuff. So we, we, we do penetration testing, we do basic consulting, uh, but where I get most of my enjoyment is trying to figure stuff out that nobody has figured out yet. Yeah, well, and with the pace that stuff is changing these days, I can imagine that that, that scope kind of, of what gets complicated and is beyond sort of the the easy grasp of, well, we know we already know how to do that. We already know how to set up the firewall. Like that keeps yes. growing. Um so you know, you recently published. Um, I, I came across it on Twitter, an API security maturity model. And and let me just pause there and, and mm-hmm. get some clarification. Is it uh, security API maturity model, like APIs that are specific to security, or is it an API security maturity model where it's about securing any and all APIs? Um, so I probably have to go back to where I started with this. Um, I got really frustrated uh, because um, I deliver virtual CISO services where I work with um, companies' security team to, to build their security program. Uh, and security engineers are consuming APIs. A lot of um, the products in the security area are, um, are point solutions. So there's a lot of little things that you have to pull together to get uh, one unified view. Um, and those APIs were, um, I'm trying to find a nice word, not that good. <laughs> they <laughs> not were that lacking. Good. <laughs> <laughs> lacking, yeah, that's, 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 that's the right word. Um, so I started thinking about how can we solve this? Um, obviously, you can um, frustrate developers um, or security engineers and, uh, and let them scrape websites or, or work with APIs that are um, not up to par. Um, or we can try to work with different allies within the organization. And I'm thinking about uh, procurement people, but telling procurement people that they should buy um, usable APIs is not something that they understand. So I tried to come up with a simple model um, that I could use, that my security engineers could use uh, if they were evaluating products um, to check the boxes, basically the basic uh, functionality uh, of what is needed, but also that could be included in in RFPs or tenders. um, So vendors would actually see it and maybe question themselves, and that's the idealist in me, uh, questioning themselves and and see how they can 
make their APIs better. Okay, so, so this from different per- perspectives, I, I try to move not from the top, but I uh, try to influence different areas to get where I want the industry to be. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense, and and of course, you know, you're, this all being kind of born out of frustration, right? Like uh, uh, necessity is the the mother of invention. So yes. that's those are sometimes where the best things come from is when you're just absolutely ready to throw your laptop at the wall. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, um, I I built it um, an API security maturity model, uh, but I've re- recently started uh, to use it with development teams in organizations that I work with uh, because they're developing APIs as well, uh, and they they found it very useful as a guide on on how they. Uh, need to develop non-security APIs. It was born out of frustration with security products, uh, but it's applicable to, to to any product that has an API. Yeah, so that that's interesting, and it makes a lot of sense because when I looked at it, I was like, well, this just... I mean, this sort of just looks like it could be generic for any APIs about how to apply security best practices, but then there was something in the wording that sort of made me think, maybe maybe this is different, and it sounds like it is actually kind of both. Um, so, and I, I like the sort of, uh, multi-vector thinking that you have around how publishing a maturity model can help solve for not only the people who have to use the products, but those who are needing to make decisions about procuring the products. And and then of course, back to those who have to build the products. So, um, and then I think there's almost been a, another vector discovered with just general developers and is it so there's my next question you sort of already answered was going to be around is this more for the people building the apis or more for the people using them but you've kind of explained that it 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 really is for both um for those building it gives them some sort of uh, a checklist of goals that they can put on their roadmap and for those consuming it's those things that they need to look for before they pick up a tool or um or some such it's, okay. uh, it's funny, some, uh, a person on Twitter, uh, someone I really respect, uh, Ian Coldwater, I don't know if you're uh, aware of them. Yeah. Um, uh, they, they posted something earlier today uh, where their kids um, watched one of their talks on, on Kubernetes uh, and their kids told them that they understood uh, uh, Kubernetes now. Um, and that's basically the thinking in basically every, everything that I, that, I, that I try to share, uh, that your technical te- technical knowledge shouldn't, um, or your lack of te- technical knowledge should not pre- prohibit you from understanding what we're trying to do, right? Uh, so it should be usable for, for somebody that is very technical as a checklist of this is what I need to do, but also from, uh, for instance, that uh, accountant that is involved in your procurement department that can that can understand what is on, on that document and what, what is necessary from a product we're going to buy. Yeah, um, I, I love giving paths for, for folks who aren't technical to be able to wrap their head around something. Because I think that's also useful for folks who who are technical, but because things are evolving and changing so fast, and it's mm-hmm. so hard to keep up with so much change on so many fronts that even if you know, you're a technical domain expert in one area, if you know having a way to be able to quickly get up to speed and know what you should be looking for in another area that can be very valuable so yeah really something that that spans that now um i'd love to start diving in a little bit to to the different pieces of the maturity model there's about 20 factors if you will um but i also want to see if brian had any other questions on kind of the the genesis of of the maturity model 
Yeah, no, I, I think we kind of lucked out because I had a, I had a few questions that I think we kind of accidentally stumbled on. I, I guess really what what I was thinking of when I was first looking at this, what stood out to me was looking at kind of the higher level points. I'm like, okay, yeah, I know I need documentation that makes sense. I know I need to do this in my implementation, but there are some things that even as someone who's been implementing APIs for my career now, you know, I'm looking at some of these things and and there's still things that I, I forget, right? You know, there are things like oh yeah, you know, I need to make sure my documentation covers proper examples of workflows, right? <laughs> um, you know, something that I feel like I don't do a good job of. Um, so I, I think this is, you know, something that's really interesting for, for really everyone. You know, you mentioned the, procure, the procurement side of things, but also the implementation for, uh, you know, maybe someone who's been doing this their whole life. It, it's a very interesting model. Yeah, what, uh, what, what I think is important, um, especially I, I assume you're a developer yourself, uh, since you said so. Um, I, I work with different development teams in, in clients that I, that I work with. Uh, and as security, we usually come in and uh, come, come, come with a big, big amount of documents about policy and, uh, and how you should do things. And over the last, let's say, two years, I've moved more to uh, a system where uh, I understand how, uh, I try to understand how you do things. Uh, and I provide checklists of what what you need to do, uh, but you you are smart enough to um, to implement it in the right way. So how how you do it doesn't matter to me. Uh, what needs to be done uh, needs to be available in the checklist that you can uh, refer to. And okay, did I, did I do all the things? Uh, and that that's all that is needed. Um, so that that's what I tried with this as well. Just provide a checklist, not not a long document of 200 pages that you need to read. Um, that. As as a as an expert, you 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 really don't need just just a checklist and uh, keep it as simple as possible. Yeah, I think I love it. That and that totally plays into um, the, the whole model of like you know shifting security left, right? How do you shift it so that it's happening earlier in the development cycle, and not something that has to get bolted on or becomes a huge roadblock to getting into production later because someone's going to throw that two hundred and fifty page. Book at you. I mean, someone being someone in the security department, and there's not actually a 250 page book, but you get the yeah. idea. Um, and uh, what maybe one thing to interject? I, I really don't like the term um, shift shift left. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I know it's very very much used in um, in application security and uh, application development in general. But if you look at a business process, it is never a linear process. It goes up and down, left and right. Uh, and it uh, even even moves in in, in different dimensions. So the, the, for for me, there is no left. If I as a uh, as a security professional want to influence security within a development lifecycle, I'm touching um, I'm touching processes in uh, in in a three D model. So there there is no left. I need I need to influence everywhere, uh, and I need to be able to to shift in all directions. I'm smiling because that is such a security person way to answer that question. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll be honest, like security is one of those areas that as I was coming in and learning infrastructure software that I was like, wow, this is, I can't, you know, other stuff had sort of a logical order to it that I could understand in the application stack and, you know, how applications would talk to databases and where the operating systems fit in. And then someone would bring up security and I felt like, there was you couldn't get any leverage points because you couldn't build upon something and then achieve. It was, there was always like, oh, but there's this other way you could come in, and yeah. it's it sort of left me with this impression that 
security experts, they really are thinking about the world in a, in a different way, in this sort of three-dimensional way. Whereas like other folks trying to just make order out of stuff do want to put things in a linear model. Um, and so whether that's, you know, the up and down of the app stack or the left to right of a, of a delivery cycle, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's this mental sort of uh, mode that security is going to see things in 3D and look at multiple vectors. And there's not necessarily a way to completely block everything out with a few moves. You, know, yeah. you have to constantly be looking for new openings that are created, et cetera. So um, I just have to smile that like, of course, shift left wouldn't like appeal to someone who's a security expert. Um, it's so easy for, you know, someone like me to wrap my head around, but I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I, I think my point is though, that if you're trying to sort of disperse and diffuse the responsibility of security into uh developers who are not security experts, but of course they, they want their application to be secure, their, their service to be secure, um, making it easy, uh, making the, the right thing, the easy thing to do and something like a checklist tends to work for stuff like that. So yeah. um, I'll, I'll try to expunge shift left from my vocabulary for at least the no, next I, 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 it can It can definitely be a useful term uh, talking to, to uh, different different audiences, uh, but I always try to make sure when I talk to executives and stuff like that, um, that we make clear that there, there is no linear process and there, there are no deming cycles that work. Everything moves in organized chaos. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's, that's something I've actually... Uh, it's a really interesting point, right? Because I feel like this is something I've been seeing kind of across the different components of tech, right, is um, it's becoming less and less about, okay, I've done my development, now we're going to do our security check, okay, now it's been gone through security, let's send it to operations, and not just the collaboration between those teams, but just the sort of melding of that education has been kind of spreading over those uh, specialties, I yeah. think, and it's it's a uh, community you brought up, uh, Ian Coldwater, because they gave a talk um, I believe it was near the beginning of the year that talked about this. Um, I really wish I could remember the name of the talk. It was, it was so good. But um, that's what got me really thinking is, you know, okay, as a developer, I need to really start understanding security, for example. You know, I know I need single sign-on. I know I need to encrypt this data, but past that, like how are attackers, you know, what vulnerabilities are they, are they exploiting? Um, yeah. What does that look like? So I know how to write more secure code. Yeah, I do a lot of uh, threat modeling with uh, development teams, and it's um, threat modeling isn't that hard. It's um, it's basically thinking thinking like an attacker. Uh, so I usually see when I when I do training, uh, it's usually a two day training. Uh, I see uh, the developers take take on that knowledge and immediately start thinking about the uh, the the stuff they're working on right now, um, and and start applying that knowledge. Uh, and they, they find it useful to, to give push, push back to product managers to actually say, uh, well, we're developing this, but uh, due to security, we cannot do this and this. Uh, and threat modeling gives them the tools to build that argument. Mm-hmm. They, they, they know it is there, uh, but without the threat modeling knowledge and uh, the ability to um, basically gather the data and gather the evidence, uh, they, they have no way to push back um, against uh, other forces within the organization. So they're, they're really happy when they uh, when they have those tools uh, and you see them running with it. Uh, yeah, like they're empowered to sort of be able to say no to certain things, which is really hard. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, let's dive into the to the model a little bit. There's three sections, yes. and I'm going to kind of try to refer to it as if someone maybe hasn't seen it. Um, and we'll include a, a link in the in the show notes. But it, there's three sections. The the first section has four points all around documentation. Um, yes. Now, the, the you set up at least kind of the 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 quick diagram that I saw. Um, you've got like kind of a one to five scale. What, what sort of moves something down that scale to sort of how you would measure their maturity? Uh, You know, not everything's going to be a five, but how do you understand if you're like, is when you're talking about, for example, those examples or that it's um, something like it's available for all the languages. It's like, well, that's, that's a little bit more binary. You can kind of, you know, tick off, we've covered the, you know, three biggest languages. And then, you know, now we need to cover like more exotic languages. Um, but something like, you know, you've provided exhaustive documentation. It's like, well, what does exhaustive mean? How do I get the five? How do I get the egg in that class? Yes. Um, so start starting with point one, uh, being publicly available. Um, obviously the zero is where there is no documentation available. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the one would be where documentation is available, but I need to have a paid account to, um, to reach the documentation. Uh, so it's, it's available, but only, uh, only if I pay, uh, I, I strongly believe that, uh, putting your API out there, uh, will get you much more feedback and ability to improve on your, um, uh, documentation and obviously the five is when uh, I can just access the documentation from your website, right? Uh, without any authentication or paywall or uh, or data wall. Exhaustive. Um, you see documentation where they uh, don't give any expl- explanation about the uh, different endpoints at all. Um, they just uh, tell you which data um, um, which data is mandatory, which uh, which is optional, uh, and at best they they give an example uh, using curl. Now, as an API developer, I, I hope that people use my, um, my API with more than curl alone. Um, but obviously, that is not uh, exhaustive enough. Okay. So what would, what would more exhaustive look like? You, you're covering all the different endpoints. You're providing more examples. What else should yeah, people be aspiring to? Um, give give enough um, explanation about the purpose of the of the of the endpoint, um, its potential limitations, uh, what data is uh, pr- um, supposed to uh, give back. Um, one, one one important thing in uh, API calls for for me, for instance, is the content type. There there's a lot of uh, API documentation that doesn't provide information about what content type should be requested and what they should expect back. Mm. Those are those are little things that um, that would influence that uh, exhaustiveness uh, factor. Okay. All right. That's yeah. That's great. Then people can kind of measure themselves moving along that curve. Yeah. Okay. And then I think after that are some examples. So you mentioned sort of at best an example in curl, right? Is sort of like, you know, I don't know if that's a passing grade even. Yeah. So I'm 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 not a well-trained uh, developer. I can uh, write some proof of concept code, but I'm definitely not uh, um, up to par uh, delivering um, production-ready um, production-ready code. Um, but translating documentation um, using a curl call to uh, a Python or a JavaScript implementation is a lot of work. So 
either um, providing the documentation with examples of the most common languages, uh, and then I'm uh, mostly thinking about JavaScript, uh, Ruby, Python, that, that, that is really useful for, uh, for developers, I believe. Yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, I, 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 like you said, I've seen so many uh, API documentation where it's just, if you're lucky, there's a curl command, and then uh, you know there's some specifics on how curl handles requests to with specific flags you can or maybe omit. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I totally agree. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> would um, like if if people are looking at documentation and then and they're finding it deficient in in kind of any of the ways you described, whether it's you know how exhaustive it is and and the the availability of the examples is like having a mechanism to to provide feedback um or to be able to submit like hey you know i actually i I, you don't have an example of how to do this in ruby or spring and and i have that example here's a way for me to actually provide that back to you is that even that availability of collecting that feedback or allowing people to I don't know if you would use a, like how was just some way to be able to get like, yes, you can that would be awesome. to our documentation. Is that, a, is that itself something that's sort of along that maturity curve? Um, I believe so. If, if that kind of functional functionality exists, that would definitely um, uh, push, push you up um, one, one or two, uh, one or two slots. Uh, yeah. It obviously, obviously doesn't uh, absolve you from providing good documentation. Um Relying on your users to provide uh, to create the documentation for you is not uh, is is definitely not a win. Uh, but having that feedback loop is uh, very important, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then there was another one more section, I think, in the documentation. Yes, workflow examples. So explain a little bit about what that means. So. Um, Taking the example of, um, for instance, they, they, there's a product that I, that I know, and I will not do product placement, uh, but they uh, provide a honeypot um, that you can deploy in your network, um, and they uh, report to a central console uh, that you call with, can call with an API, uh, and you can call the current alerts. Uh, the, the alerts come back. Uh, every every uh, The list of alerts com, uh, comes back. You can uh, call every alert and get details of the alert. Uh, and then you can um, take data from the alert and, and push it to, uh, for instance, a firewall to block a certain IP, right? Okay. Um, that kind of workflow uh, needs to be documented. Um, and that doesn't only help the people that use it, uh, because they will realize that, okay, I can use this product for more things than, uh, than I imagined. Uh, but it also helps the developer to understand if there's any break in, in that type of workflow. For, uh, for a user. So it's really about understanding almost like the use case uh, for that API. Yes. Okay, so if we come back now, the next section is around um, authentication uh, and, and authorization. So, you know, this was definitely something I remember, you know, Brian called out in his his write-up that I was reading recently. Um, mm-hmm. What's sort of the, the, the high-level kind of reminders around the different points that you have in the, in the authentication section? Um, so when I look at authentication uh, within an API uh, as it is now within uh, several products, uh, they will let you do a call with a username and password um, every time. Right? So basic authentication, instead of authenticating once, getting a token, and then using that token for the duration that you need it, um, they, they would basically do um, basic, basic uh, HTTP authentication. 
uh, and you're sending the credentials back and forth every time, which increases the risk because um, at any point, somebody uh, can do a man-in-the-middle attack and get those credentials uh, and use those credentials uh, forever. So um, in my ideal world, um, a user can self-generate an API token. Uh, so within their uh, web interface, they have the ability to create uh, an API token, but it is displayed only once. So they can copy-paste it uh, when it is displayed. After that, uh, you don't want to uh, be able, want them to be able to retrieve that uh, ever again. Uh, the reason for that is uh, simple. If they lose the API to, uh, key or uh, it is compromised, the moment they regenerate um, an API key, the old one is invalidated. So anybody that was able to obtain that, uh, that key can no longer use it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you would allow them to um, display, display that token again, uh, they, there would be no blocking factor. There would be no indicator that an, uh, um, an API token is compromised. And it becomes the user's responsibility to protect that token uh, with everything they have. So there we are on the self-generating uh, of API tokens. Um, I think in itself, uh, generating it for them, so di- displaying it um, um, in, in your web interface is, is not necessarily a, a, a huge problem. Uh, but I think the, the responsibility uh, needs to be with the user to protect that uh, to protect that key, uh, and you don't want to be blamed at some point um, if they lose their key uh, and somebody accesses their data um, maliciously. Then um, you you don't want to take that blame, right? Uh, explain that a little bit more to me. So it's the user's responsibility to protect their key. What happens if a user's not sort of doing that. What's at risk for the the API provider, we'll say, if the user's not actually protecting their key and following best practices? Uh, that, that would mean that that, that key, um, for instance, ends up in uh, in code published on GitHub, uh, and there's people people actually um, constantly looking for uh, for keys or key material there, uh, so they, they can use that to uh, to access data within within your product. So how do we avoid that? By um, educating um, the the users. That okay. I, I think that's the only way. I've I've uh, of, often uh, heard um, examples of why, for instance, uh, keys are kept on the server side as well. Um, and um, the, the explanation then is, well, sometimes users lose keys, and then we have to send them uh, the keys again. Um, but in in the end, it's it's an access token. Uh, right. You you don't keep ten copies of your house key. Um, everywhere around your house. So in case you forget uh, forget your key, you can find another one. That's not a smart thing to do. So you shouldn't do that with uh, API keys either. Okay. So it, it's sort of akin to, oh, I've, I've left my keys at the restaurant or whatever. Uh, I'm not going to go and just go get it that same key remade, I'm going to change the lock. Yes. Brian, feel free to jump in with smarter questions. <laughs> this, is, this starts to get out of my depth. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, this is all good. I mean, this is, um, you know, I'm, as we're kind of going through this, I'm just thinking of, of trends I've seen in, in some public APIs. Um, and of course, these are the, the trends we're seeing more and more of um, because of the reasons you said, right? You know, base, basic authentication where you're using a password just going off in plain text. That's just a ticking time bomb until someone sniffs that out and, uh, you know, starts uploading files to your storage provider, for example, yeah. and runs up your bill 
hundred grams. Um, so no, I, I think these are all, again, it's sort of what I mentioned earlier is these are things that even if, if you've been developing APIs for, or, or consuming APIs for, for years, I think kind of gets lost on people because it's like, okay, yeah, you know, I'm sure it does authentication and authorization properly, but I don't think enough people kind of sit down and analyze that and say, oh, no, they're not really handling these tokens correctly. Like, like you said, I can go in and I can just get my token in plain text, it turns out. Yeah. I didn't even know I could do that until I, I dove into it. So. Why, why, why not include an example of uh, how to protect your, um, uh, your keys uh, using maybe AWS uh, key management system or an Azure key management system or an HashiCorp Vault exactly. um, and add, add, add that to your documentation? Not, not focused on one product preferably, but um, or at least on, um, on, a, on a logical level, um, you're working with key material, uh, this is the best way um, or this is the recommended way to protect those things. So exactly. don't put don't put them in your binaries uh, like uh, Atlassian did last week, I think, or two weeks ago. That kind of stuff. Okay, yeah. I mean, anytime there's kind of that shift of responsibility, you're you're sort of asking someone else to do things responsibly, then that immediately raises questions for me of like, well, how are you making it easy for them? Like, if if you're making it their responsibility, like you're like things will go wrong, um, and so I think. This almost comes back to, you know, to, in the documentation, providing that education around how to do this securely and how to handle your um, your keys and tokens correctly. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, in an ideal world, everyone would know not to store things in plain text in their, in their code, but we know that that's not the case. So we don't mm-hmm. want to we don't want that, you know, mistake on the part of our users or someone consuming our service to, to happen. So how do we, how do we avoid that? Even though it's essentially their responsibility. Exactly. Okay. All right. That helps. Um, all right. So if, if we skip ahead to start to look at, unless there's anything else, just I'm looking at the time. Um, yeah. If we want to jump ahead to the implementation section, which has uh, probably about, 10 or so different points in it. And this, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, this kind of seemed to map to um, the, your sort of section around like just design, like API design, right? Adhering to REST principles, um, following the HTTP verbs, like those kind of being your your core best practices around basic API design. Is that a fair characterization to think about this implementation section? Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, um something I've been really kind of mulling over the last couple of days preparing for this conversation was um, what are those ramifications of a well-designed API kind of following these, these principles, right? You know, obviously there's, it's easy to use, which is the, the first and foremost, uh, you know, the important part. Uh, but I also started to think about this when it comes to things like operations and, and security, you know, I keep harping on that, but um, you know, as an operator, if I know that this is a, well-designed API that's going to be uh, returning proper status codes. I can hook my monitoring tools into that and, and my learning tools into that. Um, if, and from a few years of experience of, of operations as well, um, to me, this all kind of screams predictability. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe you can chime in from a, from a security standpoint, but for me, predictability was like, uh, that, that was everything to me. Like, I mean, I could, I could monitor it. I could, I could, um, you know, I could measure it and I could plan for growth. Um, so I, that's, that's sort of the, the 
general thought I get when it comes to actual implementation of uh, of APIs, whether they're Rust APIs or not. But um, curious on your thoughts on that. Yeah, what were the uh, the goals? Um, yes, I, I I think you uh, you captured it better than um, when I was thinking when I wrote it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> predictability definitely is a thing, and if I look at the the things that I uh, value most in in a well designed uh, designed API, definitely three G. Um, standard application uses the same API. If your application doesn't use the API that you uh, publish to your uh, to your users, uh, if those are separate, then you probably have a problem. Um, uh, eat your eat your own dog food. Uh, in Europe, we say drink your own champagne. Mm. Um, I, I prefer I champagne well, yeah. to dog food. I'm just going to point that <laughs> exactly. out. Well, yeah. that, that, that depends on the people. <laughs> um, I prefer champagne as well. Um, that. I, I think that is a very good um, approach to developing applications and basically any any product that you would uh, create. If you don't want to use your own product, then why are you selling it to customers? From a security point of view, uh, definitely the logging and the audit trail um, being available through the API uh, and, and not having to jump through hoops uh, or log into an admin interface to see to see the logging. Uh, I want to be able to consume that logging and, and push it into an, an analysis engine um, just through code. So integrate it as uh, as well as possible, uh, and then definitely the the versioning as well. Um, if you just change your endpoints uh, and um, change change the way they uh, have, have to interact with them, uh, that's gonna throw off my my whole um, automated workflow, uh, and that's just gonna be hell. So I, I guess that plays definitely into the uh, predictability uh, paradigm. Yeah, I feel like there's been. Uh, almost wars fought over versioning and how to properly do that. But yeah, you know, at least some strategy is, is better than none. Right. <laughs> uh, I fully agree there. Um, and, and again, the, 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 the checklist um, hopefully allows developers to, uh, to think, think about it um, when they start developing an API. Um, I think it's useful when an API already exists and then you want to grow it. Um, I've, I've done assessments on, uh, I think, two security products um, that allowed me to basically do a litmus test of, uh, of this framework uh, or, or maturity model, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they, they were very happy with the feedback. So I think it kind of works. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of these, as, as I, I sort of implied before, was these look like they are generic to just any kind of security best practices for any kind of API, not necessarily strictly speaking for security products or, or services. Are there any, I mean, but it was something like, for example, the logging and on a trail that you mentioned, I can mm-hmm. see absolutely how in a security product that would be essential. Is that as critical in, you know, just any generic API that could be out there? Um, I Maybe believe it is. It is I, I believe it is more and more um, because, uh, for instance, in Europe you have the general data protection uh, regulation as well, where the audit trail is a mandatory requirement, mm-hmm. um, make, making it possible for me as a, as an organization uh, to create that audit trail uh, to an API instead of going through a web interface um, is going to make my life much much easier because I'm not using just your product, but I'm using dozens of other products that also produce audit trails, copying and pasting all of that to an Excel sheet and then trying to sort uh, sort it out, um, it's not going to work. If I can automate that uh, with uh, with a Python script, I'm, 
I'm going to want to do that. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So these things that that may once have been really you know critical for security, but optional elsewhere, are increasingly becoming uh, sort of critical everywhere. Um, yes. So, uh, and I, I mean, we could go through each one of these and and work on defining you know, what the one versus the five scale is. I'm not sure we have time to go through all of these, but are there any that jump out at you that you'd like want to put on people's radar is like, this is what a five looks like versus a one in one of these implementation points. Um, I, I think right, right now, the way, the, the way I've written, written that I, um, I really meant it um, as a checklist, and it depends on uh, on on the person that is looking at it. Um, to 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 judge what uh, what a one and a five is, uh, I I didn't want to be very strict in in those categorizations. Um, so de- depending on uh, what the product product is, the maturity of the of the user, uh, and what the product will be used for, uh, the, the the values of one and five can can shift a bit. I'm still working on the uh, on the documentation of the um, of the maturity model itself, uh, so I'm probably gonna gonna figure out what what it exactly means uh, the difference between a one and a two and a five. Uh, but right now, I don't really have an answer to that. Okay, yeah, I can imagine for each one of these, like that's it's a different answer. Um, so that's like twenty different uh, one and five definitions that yes. you have to go right. I, I, I think, for, for instance, if you look at 3B, uh, no URL parameters are used. Uh, that seems like a very strict requirement. Uh, but I think from a checklist perspective, uh, it's a good starting point, saying we cannot use uh, URL parameters. But in some cases, you're going to have to use them, right? Uh, but at least makes you think, OK, we're, uh, we're not supposed to, uh, to use them. In this case, we really need them. Um, and you can justify why you need them. But at least you're thinking about it. Yeah, and it doesn't become your default solution for uh, something that you can probably solve in another way. Okay. It, yeah, I think that that point specifically, I saw there was a really interesting uh, that sparked a really interesting conversation on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, like you said, it got me thinking. I was like, okay, this isn't so much of a um, you know strict you know you have to do this or your product's awful. It's think about these things. Let's let's justify why we're making the decisions rather yeah. than just you know, throw it at a wall and see what sticks. Yes. Uh, for, for me, the thinking was uh, mostly if, if I have to build a request uh, purely using uh, URL parameters, uh, that is hell, in no matter yeah. what, what language <laughs> I want to use. If I, if I can structure um, a request body uh, using JSON or, or whatever, that makes my life much, much easier. Where would you recommend folks go next if they want to learn more? I mean, you will include the, the link to where you have this maturity model published and your, your Twitter handle where they can keep up with you. Where, what else would you recommend folks who want to learn more about some of these, um, uh, kind of factors and, and just want to get, get stronger in and how they're applying security principles. What would you recommend that they, they sort of do as a next step? Uh, well, definitely once I start um, building the documentation, which will probably be during the Christmas holidays, um, provide as much feedback as possible. Um, there is some uh, API guidance uh, on the OWASP site. That's uh, OWASP.org. Uh, but other than that, I've not found a lot um, out there. Uh, the 
so I, I, I didn't think about this as a maturity model to start from. Um, it's only when, when we started calling that that it became that. Uh, and apparently the, the only other um, API maturity model, model that exists is something called uh, the Richardson maturity model. I don't know if you've ever heard uh, about it, but it's uh, from 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's mostly about uh, REST maturity. So it's, okay. it's not about the functional uh, and definitely not about the documentation. Um, so th- definitely I would say, I would say OWASP um, and, and try to look at uh, different APIs uh, from um, similar products uh, out there. Uh, things you find on GitHub, uh, other pro- products that uh, publish their uh, API and uh, try to learn from there. All right. Well, this has been, you know, a really interesting and, and educational chat. So I think this is a, this is going to be a really useful checklist for a lot of folks um, as, as you described. And um, Brian, I don't know if you have any final questions, uh, but uh, definitely thank you for, for joining us on, on the conversation. Thanks for having me.